Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The U.S. national debt has reached a record high, according to a new report this week. The national debt has increased by over 30 percent since the pandemic started. A Florida sheriff warning looting could worsen amid chaos following Hurricane Ian. Other officials warning would-be looters that Florida is a Second Amendment state and that many residents have firearms. Communities in southwest Florida are healing from the devastation of Hurricane Ian. Raging storms rattle local houses, but not people's faith. The Supreme Court hears a high-profile voting rights case that could have a heavy influence in future elections. We have the details. Arizona's Democratic gubernatorial candidate is declining to debate her Republican opponent. This is one of the key races to watch in the November elections. The OPEC Plus Alliance plans to cut oil production by 2 million barrels per day. They reached the agreement in Vienna today, despite pressure from President Biden to boost production. The U.S. and other nations hoped the group would pump up oil supplies to curb inflation. The group says the decision was made, quote, in light of the uncertainty that surrounds the global economic and oil market outlooks. These cuts will add to the already strained global markets. In August, OPEC's production was over 3 million barrels per day short of its original target. Oil prices have now fallen to about $90 from 120 three months ago, following concerns of a global recession, a stronger dollar, and rising U.S. interest rates. The new cuts are expected to spur a rebound in oil prices, especially in producing countries like Russia. Moving on to domestic affairs, the national debt has surpassed $31 trillion for the first time ever. It has been on a steep rise since the pandemic started. Here's more. The Treasury Department published data on Tuesday saying the U.S. national debt has surpassed $31 trillion for the first time in history. President Biden and Congress increased government borrowing during the COVID-19 pandemic in order to prop up the economy amid job losses and supply chain disruptions. Prior to the pandemic, at the end of 2019, the national debt stood at under $23 trillion. Just a year later, when former President Trump was still in office, it had risen to almost $28 trillion and has continued to add gains since. However, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget said in a Monday statement that the U.S. has now overcome the most severe challenges of the pandemic, but that the Biden administration continues to borrow huge amounts of money. As the committee put it, just in 2022, Congress and the president have approved a combined $1.9 trillion in new borrowing, and President Biden has approved $4.9 trillion in new deficits since taking office. We are addicted to debt. They say what's even more troubling than the debt itself is where it's heading, warning that excessive borrowing could see inflation skyrocket further and increase the national debt to a new record by 2030. They say government should commit to no further borrowing, at least for the remaining three months of this year. In September, Biden pointed out how he reduced the budget deficit. Tracks reducing the federal deficit. You know how they talk about responsible debt? They, the last guy left me with a giant deficit. Well, guess what? In my first year, I reduced the deficit by $350 billion. We reached out to the White House for comment on the national debt and government borrowing, but didn't hear back before broadcast. From debt to disaster, amid the chaos following Hurricane Ian, some people are taking advantage of the situation by looting. One sheriff is warning that it could worsen. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. 
The sheriff of Martin County, Florida, William Snyder, says he doesn't expect the looting to calm down. He told local media, T.C. Palm, that looters started stealing and ransacking structures shortly after Hurricane Ian made landfall last week. He said it was very early and some of the looting was starting already, but it will get progressively worse, I think, as people become more desperate. Last week, Sheriff Snyder and a team were sent to help in the aftermath. They received reports of people stealing gas-powered generators. Another report said a house was burning after the owner put a generator in the garage so it wouldn't be stolen. Sheriff Snyder noted how fragile society is when electricity and water go. Meanwhile, other Florida officials, including Governor Ron DeSantis, are warning would-be looters not to target hurricane victims because they might not make it out alive. During a press conference last week, DeSantis noted that many Florida residents have firearms. I can tell you in the state of Florida, uh, you never know what may be lurking behind somebody's home. And I would not want to chance that if I were you, given that we're a Second Amendment state. DeSantis also noted seeing a sign directed at would-be looters displayed at a business that said, you loot, we shoot. Lee County Sheriff Carmine Marcino Tuesday echoed the governor's warning after four people, including three illegal immigrants, were arrested for looting last week. Sheriff Marcino said, We have law and order and great residents will be safe and secure. We've had arrests on these incidents. You might walk in, you'll be carried out. Florida has so-called stand-your-ground and castle doctrine laws on its books. They allow people who feel a reasonable threat of death or bodily injury or who confront home invaders to respond with force rather than retreat. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. With unstoppable intensity, Hurricane Ian left a path of destruction in southwest Florida. Local churches are providing a steady force in the lives of those plunged into chaos and grief. Here's the story. The Comptons lost their home and possessions to the fury of Ian. When the storm made landfall last Wednesday, they took refuge in a local Baptist church along with other parishioners seeking shelter from the havoc. It was just like Noah's Ark. You didn't know how high the water was going to come. When it started coming in, we didn't know when it was going to stop. We were up on our pulpit in the church. Floodwaters rushed in under the seats and drove the parishioners to the pulpit. Gusts of wind tore the church's steeple apart. The steeple came down. It sounded like a bomb hit the roof. A big hole appeared and oh, debris yeah. came Water. through the hole. But wow. it didn't hurt anybody. Everybody was safe. Amid frustration and fear, they prayed for help. Our church has been built to withstand 130 mile an hour winds. Well, we know now it, stand, it can withstand more than that with God's hand on it. Like the Comptons, nearly a dozen newly homeless people have found a temporary shelter at Southwest Baptist Church. It's in one of the most devastated communities in Fort Myers, boasting a congregation of several hundred. Uh, we're, I'm guessing 25% of our people had lost their home. Um, that's just a wild guess, but it, it, it's, it's not like three or four. There's a bunch of people. All of these parks around here, they are... Um, under, they were mostly, if not completely, underwater. Also seeking sanctuary is retiree Barbara Wasco. And uh, we each have a pillow. There's medication. And then our little cooler. Uh, 
yeah. and bags with our clothes in. While sleeping in a recliner for the moment, she believes the community will get through the hard times. Across town, about 50 parishioners at the Assembly of God Bethlehem Ministry came together. They recounted how they had no electricity, no drinkable running water, and in many cases were left with damaged homes. Pastor Elton Silva said the storm tested the resilience and faith of his community. The members of our congregation, we don't have a loss like that, but we need to pray for the people lost more us. After this weekend, some people not think more about faith, about family, about God. The fury of Hurricane Ian left over 100 dead and countless others stranded. For many, it may have been the worst disaster in generations. Airbnb is offering housing to hurricane victims in Florida, either for free or at a discounted price. The company plans to use $5 million to give shelter to people whose homes were lost or severely damaged and for first responders helping in the recovery process. The company is working with local nonprofits to find places for people to stay. Those include Global Empowerment Mission, Core Response, Operation Blessing, and Inspiritus. Anyone who is displaced and looking for accommodations can go online to airbnb.com slash Hurricane Ian Florida. The company also announced it has donated $250,000 to Florida's Disaster Relief Fund. In other news, Alabama defended its redrawn electoral map before the Supreme Court yesterday. It argues that the Federal Voting Rights Act does not require the state to modify districts based on race to guarantee black representation in Congress. The hearing came after a flurry of activity in the legal dispute. Earlier this year, an Alabama U.S. District Court issued a ruling that Alabama must draw new congressional districts before the 2022 elections. This in order to increase black voting power. That court found that federal law and existing legal precedents require the state to have two predominantly black districts, not just one. Democratic Representative Terry Sewell points out that African Americans in Alabama are 27% of the population and yet only hold one of the seven seats. For the last 12 years, I had the honor of representing uh, the majority of the black people. But I have to tell you, representation matters. Alabama disagreed with the district court filing an appeal. The Supreme Court temporarily suspended the lower court ruling in February. An attorney involved in the case had this to say. Uh, this is a, one of the most important redistricting cases to come before the court in a long time. Uh, the fundamental promise of, of our democracy requires that every voter, regardless of race, be given an equal opportunity to participate. The Supreme Court's newest justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, and the two other liberal justices vigorously questioned Alabama Solicitor General Edmund LaCour. He says the Voting Rights Act requires an electoral process equally open to all, not one that guarantees maximum political success for some over others. Meanwhile, Jackson says the framers of the Constitution themselves adopted the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, in a race-conscious way. A ruling is expected later this term after the congressional elections. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Now turning our attention to the midterm elections, Arizona will have a new governor after this November. And one of the candidates has refused to debate her opponent. Here are the details. That's why I'm running for governor. Arizona's Democratic gubernatorial candidate Katie Hobbs has declined to debate her Republican opponent, Carrie Lake, ahead of the November election. Her campaign told local media that she won't argue with the conspiracy theorist. They wrote, quote, 
Secretary Hobbs remains willing and eager to participate in a town hall style event. Unfortunately, debating a conspiracy theorist like Carrie Lake, whose entire campaign platform is to cause enormous chaos and make Arizona the subject of national ridicule, would only lead to constant interruptions, pointless distractions, and childish name calling. We must respectfully decline the invitation. During an event on Monday, Lake responded to being called a conspiracy theorist. Well, you know what? If that's what you think of me, then come sit on a debate stage and call me out. But she's afraid. Because we know that's not the real reason she won't debate me. The real reason is she has bankrupt ideas, dead-end ideas. She has a track record in, in the Senate that is abysmal. Her voting record is horrible. She voted the Citizens Clean Elections Commission would have hosted the debate. The commission told the Epic Times, quote, debates are a critical tool for voters to learn directly from the candidates about where they stand on the issues. Most recently, a poll commissioned by Clean Elections identified debates as a primary source of election information for general election voters. The group rejected Hobbs' request for a town hall style format. The latest polls show Lake and Hobbs in a near deadlock, with Lake leading Hobbs 46% to 45% among respondents. The candidates are also running close in fundraising. Hobbs has generated $5 million, with Lake just under $4 million. The winner in the general election will succeed Republican Governor Doug Ducey. Term limits prevent him from seeking re-election. Moving on to other election news, a man is arrested for stealing the personal data of Los Angeles County election workers and storing it on servers in China. He's the CEO of Michigan-based software company Connect Corporation. While arresting Eugene Yu, investigators also seized computer hard drives and other digital data relevant to the case. The L.A. District Attorney's Office said that it would seek Yu's extradition to the city. Connect won a five-year, $2.9 million contract with L.A. County in 2020 for an election worker management software called Poll Chief. Under the contract, Connect was supposed to maintain the data securely and only provide access to U.S. citizens and permanent residents. But investigators found that it stored the data on servers in China. The L.A. District Attorney says, quote, the alleged conduct had no impact on the tabulation of votes and did not alter election results. But he added that, quote, security in all aspects of any election is essential so that we all have full faith in the integrity of the election process. And coming up on food, Best Buy labels often cause confusion among consumers. Grocers and activists want to clear up the system to reduce food waste. We have that and more after this short break. It's now illegal in California for doctors to tell patients certain information about COVID-19. Anything contradictory to the consensus is banned. We discussed this with a doctor and author of Courage to Face COVID-19. Joining us now is Dr. Peter McCullough, an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and leading expert on COVID-19 treatment. Great to have you on with us today, Dr. McCullough. Thanks for having me. Why is this California law targeting doctors who push so-called COVID misinformation so significant? You know, AB 2098, just signed into law by Governor Gavin Newsom, it's, it represents uh, the largest threat we've ever seen against freedom of speech in the United States. This basically puts a muzzle on doctors who are trying to help patients with COVID-19. It, it declares 
misinformation. And I can tell you as a doctor, that doesn't exist. There's simply evolving scientific data, uh, hundreds of thousands of scientific reports. It's a novel coronavirus. And there's always two or more interpretive points of view. Doctors deal with scientific data. There's no place for the medical board to claim information or misinformation. So now the law claims to crack down on misinformation, such as questioning the effectiveness of masks and vaccines, with one sponsor of the bill basically saying this will help preserve public trust in the medical profession and protect patients. In your view, are those measures effective, and should medical professionals be allowed to question them? Well, there's emerging sources of scientific data. Let's take masks. There have been 12 randomized trials in respiratory diseases, two in COVID-19. They failed to show that public masking had a benefit. Now, recently, the CDC has just released its guidance saying even in healthcare facilities, masking isn't needed unless we're directly dealing with COVID. I see. And now, the law has just been signed by the governor. Why now? How prevalent is COVID in the U.S. at present? COVID's on the way down. You know, we're finishing this afterwave of the Omicron, uh, the big Omicron spike in December, January. Then we've had this afterwave. It's mutated to a very mild form. The hospitals are essentially empty of severe cases. Uh, there are deaths being recorded, mainly in patients who have coincident COVID positivity. One remains positive for COVID for many months after the initial illness. So if someone's hospitalized for another reason, still being counted as a COVID case. But I can tell you clinically, I do have some patients in my practice, it's easily treated at home with multi-drug uh, multi -drug approaches. And there is a, essentially a negligible threat for hospitalization and death. So this this bill is oddly timed. Uh, it's unconstitutional. I think it's going to hurt COVID-19 care in California. Doctors are going to naturally recoil and not take risks. Speaking of the constitutionality of the bill, Californians for Good Governance opposed the law, saying it contains unconstitutional restrictions on free speech. What's your reaction to this? You know, I, I think they're on the right track and leading uh, really internationally known child psychiatrist uh, Mark McDonald and family physician Jeff Barkey just filed a lawsuit against California and AB uh, 298 with the Liberty Justice Center. So there's going to be a mountain of legal work to kill this before it gets going. We'll see how these legal challenges play out. Now, Dr. McAuliffe, what do you think Americans need to know about COVID right now? I think the most uh, important thing is everybody needs to know their status. If someone's already had COVID, the next illness with COVID is going to be mild and a negligible threat to them. So every employer, every person, every school, if they're going to keep track of anything, it's not a vaccine. It's actually be whether or not someone developed COVID-19 respiratory illness. Paper by Kimatelli and colleagues shows that if once one's already had the illness, they have a negligible risk for severe outcomes with the second case. The second case is going to be like a common cold. Very good to know. Well, COVID-19 treatment expert, Dr. Peter McCullough, pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you. Five IRS employees were charged with scamming the federal government out of hundreds of thousands of dollars in COVID relief funds. They allegedly used the money on clothes, cars, and trips. The Justice Department says they siphoned money from the Paycheck Protection Program and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. Both loan programs were aimed at helping struggling business owners during lockdowns. The suspects are either current or former employees of the IRS who live in Tennessee and Mississippi. 
Using false loan applications, they tried to obtain over $1 million in funds altogether. Brian Salisbury is charged with two counts of wire fraud and two counts of money laundering. Courtney Westmoreland is charged with three counts of wire fraud. The other suspects are charged with one count each of wire fraud. The suspects face up to 20 years in prison for each wire fraud count and 10 years max for each count of money laundering. Major U.S. airlines are rejecting lawmakers' request to refrain voluntarily from stock buybacks. This has to do with the federal government's COVID-19 payroll assistance. Democratic Congressman Peter DeFazio led the effort along with 69 other lawmakers. They asked the airlines to refrain from stock buybacks until they are able to meet demand, fill key positions, and return service to normal. Congress approved $54 billion covering much of U.S. airline payroll costs for 18 months through the end of September 2021. It came with a ban on stock buybacks, which expired last Friday. Airlines for America, a trade group representing major airlines, rejected the request. The group represents airlines including Delta, United, Southwest, and American. Google has to pay $85 million for tracking location data deceptively. It will settle a lawsuit brought by the Arizona Attorney General. The AG alleges Google made billions of dollars in profit in what the office called one of the biggest consumer fraud lawsuits in Arizona history. The AG's office adds it's the largest amount per capita Google has paid in a consumer fraud and privacy lawsuit of this kind. They began investigating Google in 2018. They found some apps continued to track user location data even if the location history feature was off. Google used other settings like web and app activity to track the data, and then they used that information to sell ads. A Google spokesperson said the company now provides straightforward controls and auto-delete options for location data. The U.N. estimates that 17% of global food is wasted each year, mostly from households. Now, Best Buy and Best Before labels are under scrutiny. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details. Manufacturers have used Best Buy or Best Before labels for decades to estimate peak freshness. But unlike used-by labels for perishable foods like meat and dairy, Best Before labels have nothing to do with safety. And the confusion may encourage American consumers to throw away food that's perfectly fine to eat. There's so many different things that are out there. There's, there's sell-by dates, there's expiration dates, there's best-by dates. Um, People don't understand what those things mean. Most of the, most people believe that if it says sell by, best buy, or expiration, you, need, you can't eat any of them. Well, that's not actually accurate. Dana Gunders is the executive director of New York-based nonprofit Refed. She agrees there's a lot of confusion. The fundamental problem is that people are misinterpreting the labels on food and they're prematurely throwing the food away because of that. And that's leading to quite a bit of food going to waste around the whole country. Refed estimates that 7% of U.S. food waste is due to consumer confusion over best before labels. That's 4 million tons of food waste annually. One of the things we'd really like to see is a system that moves towards a standardized phrase so that if the brand wants to tell you about quality, they say the words best buy on the label. And if they want to tell you about safety, well, then they say use buy. According to Refed, as much as 35% of food goes uneaten in the U.S. That adds up to a lot of wasted time and resources, including the water, land, and labor that goes into the food production. The waste also results in higher greenhouse gas emissions when unwanted food goes into landfills.
Some grocers support a bipartisan bill in Congress that would standardize U.S. date labels and ensure that food could be donated even after its quality date. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Over in Oklahoma, the state is trying to stop Oklahoma University Children's Hospital from performing gender transition treatment on minors. Governor Kevin Stitt on Tuesday signed a bill that blocks the hospital from receiving federal pandemic relief money unless it stops such practices. The new law sets aside over $108 million in American Rescue Plan funds to the University of Oklahoma's health system. But they will only get the money when they stop offering gender transition treatment to those under 18. The governor said this law is meant to prevent tax money from being used to fund irreversible procedures on healthy children. Two days before lawmakers approved the bill, the hospital system said it would stop providing such treatment, but the governor said it was not enough, and he wants another bill that would ban such treatment altogether. And over in Michigan, seven former officials won't face charges for the Flint water crisis. Michigan Circuit Judge Elizabeth Kelly on Tuesday dismissed felony charges against them. The seven people include former Michigan Department of Health and Human Services employees and a top aide to the former governor. The judge said she tossed out the charges because state prosecutors didn't follow proper charging procedures, and so there were no valid charges. But prosecutors could still file the charges again, and they've previously said they will do so. Beginning in 2014, tens of thousands of residents in Flint were exposed to dangerous levels of lead in their water system. It caused several deaths and is blamed for an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease. The crisis began when unelected officials with emergency management power switched the water supply to a local river to cut costs. A massive semiconductor factory is coming to upstate New York. The Idaho-based firm Micron said it plans to invest $100 billion to build the largest semiconductor facility in the U.S. Micron said the new factory will be built about 15 miles from Syracuse and will create nearly 50,000 jobs over the next two decades. Site preparation work will start next year and construction is slated to begin in 2024. The move comes in the wake of the U.S. government efforts to increase domestic microchip production amid a global shortage and to lessen a U.S. dependency on offshore production from Asia. The chips are building blocks required for smartphones, vehicles and computers. And if you're waiting for a better time to buy a car, you may have to keep waiting for a while. Continued auto parts shortages are driving average car prices higher and higher. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes are making it more expensive to finance a vehicle. Plus, car companies and dealers have less incentive to take steps to bring down costs because demand is still vastly greater than supply. According to Edmunds.com, the average new car loan interest rate hit 5.7% in the third quarter of 2022. That's the highest it's been since 2019. The average monthly payment in the third quarter was more than $700 compared to $630 this time last year. The average down payment is almost $1,000 more now, too. Analysts don't expect the car market to return to normal anytime soon. A chemistry professor at NYU was fired in August after his students passed around a petition complaining that his course was too hard. Around 80 of his students signed the petition in the spring. A large number of them are aspiring doctors. According to a New York Times report, the petition reads, We are very concerned about our scores and find that they are not an accurate reflection of the time and effort put into this class. 
The petition also argued that Professor Maitland Jones reduced the number of midterm exams from three to two, which made it hard for students to bring up their low grades. It further claims he did not offer extra credit nor Zoom access to lectures for students with COVID-19. It also alleges he taught with a condescending and demeaning tone. The 84-year-old Jones responded that he started seeing a loss of focus among students about a decade ago and that the problem was only made worse by the 2020 coronavirus pandemic. Jones told the New York Times that he doesn't want his job back and that he just wants to make sure that this does not happen to anyone else. The U.S. Air Force has grounded most of their older C-130 Hercules cargo planes and their variants. According to Defense News, it's due to concerns that their propeller barrels are defective. Air Mobility Command said it grounded 116 of the cargo planes on Tuesday. There are around 128 of the planes in total, including several variants. In a statement to Defense News, Air Mobility Command said it found a persistent leak coming from one of the plane's propellers. A technician then found a crack in its barrel assembly. Further inspections found two more propeller assemblies had the same problem. The military will be inspecting the planes in the coming days to see how many of those are affected. The Air Force said the groundings are widespread and that it will primarily affect the Air Force Reserve and Air National Guard. This is the second time since August 2019 that the Air Force had to ground large numbers of C-130 Hercules due to propeller problems. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, South Korea is facing a kimchi crisis. The price of ingredients for the spicy cabbage dish has skyrocketed and locals are competing with cheaper Chinese offerings. And as the 20th anniversary of the deadly Bali bombings approaches, Australians are angered by an impending release of someone involved. That and more when we return with NTD News. Welcome back. Avoid politically sensitive research. That's the directive China reportedly sent to all foreign banks operating on its turf. At the same time, the CCP is tightening control of diplomats in Hong Kong. And today's Tiffany Meyer has more. New reports suggest China may be looking to keep certain information under wraps, and it's asking banks to help. Beijing is allegedly telling foreign investment banks to stay silent on politics ahead of a crucial Communist Party Congress. That's according to a report from The Wall Street Journal, citing anonymous sources. China's securities regulators sent out a message to investment banks, including the Chinese branches of J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. It asked the banks to not publish research that could be politically sensitive. In the past, Chinese authorities cautioned foreign banks in a similar manner ahead of major political events. The key Communist Party meeting is scheduled for mid-October. It will decide who will hold positions of power in China. Current leader Xi Jinping is expected to secure a third term. NTD reached out to J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs for comment, but did not receive an immediate response. Foreign diplomats in Hong Kong are getting a request from Beijing. They're reportedly being asked to hand over floor plan information on all their properties. And it's not just floor plans of their office buildings. Also included in the ask, floor plans for the diplomats' own homes. 
On top of that, Chinese officials also want to know about the terms of rentals or sales. That's according to a report from the Financial Times, citing anonymous sources. Diplomats are concerned that Beijing could use the information to plant listening devices. A former U.S. Consul General in Hong Kong told the Financial Times that it may reflect a change of mindset. The former diplomat Kurt Tong said before the changes of 2019 and 2020, China's foreign ministry usually took a minimalist approach and mostly avoided the sort of tight control of diplomats seen in the mainland because their goal was to have foreign missions that could operate easily in Hong Kong to help China do business with the world. Yet at that now the mindset seems to be that some foreign missions are not welcome. NTD has reached out to U.S. Consulates General in Hong Kong for comment, but did not immediately receive a reply. To tackle a kimchi crisis, South Korea's government is building massive warehouses to store cabbage. Shortages of the core ingredient have sent prices skyrocketing. Let's take a look. These kimchi makers in South Korea are feeling the pinch. Faced with stiff competition from China's cheaper offerings, one supermarket shopper said the prices of raw ingredients were too high. I normally make kimchi myself, but the cost of ingredients has gone up so much. There's no difference between the price of homemade kimchi and ready-made kimchi. So I bought packages of kimchi today. Many are struggling to produce a spicy pickled side dish so central to Korean identity. Such is a sense of crisis that the government is stepping in to store cabbages and supply the industry at affordable rates. For kimchi makers like An Ik Jin, the help can't come soon enough. Storage units at his factories have been all but emptied, forcing him to source inferior quality cabbages to keep production going. He's also had to increase his prices by two-thirds to cope with rising costs. The Korean Peninsula has changed to a subtropical climate, which has caused great temperature differences between day and night, damaging cabbages in spring. Cabbages in May to June have been damaged, and the effect lasted even till July and August. We used to produce 15 tons of kimchi a day, but now we are only producing 10 tons or less. To help boost kimchi production, the government recently laid out plans to build two massive cabbage storage facilities equivalent to the size of three football fields. They will be able to store 11,000 tonnes of cabbages and pickle 55 tonnes of cabbages daily. The construction is expected to cost taxpayers 40 million US dollars and is due to be completed in 2025. Korean kimchi makers are hoping the government's plan will at least prevent homegrown producers from losing further ground against China. Chinese imports, often priced at about a third of locally made kimchi, have surged over the past two decades. They now account for 40% of the domestic market for commercially made kimchi. Concern is also growing that the cabbage shortage will torpedo the tradition of kimjang, the making and sharing of kimchi among families, friends and communities. It's been nearly 20 years since nightclub bombings on the Indonesian resort island Bali. Now the impending release of the bomb maker is sparking outrage in Australia. The two almost simultaneous blasts killed 202 people, including 88 Australians. The attacks were blamed on a Southeast Asian Islamic militant group. They were intended to scare away foreigners. The aim was for Indonesia to become part of a larger Islamic caliphate. 
Police arrested three men in late 2002 and sentenced them to death the following year. After a high-profile trial on the island of Bali, the three Indonesians were executed by a firing squad in 2008, and another Islamic militant was sentenced to 20 years for making the bombs. His impending early release has angered Australians. The Prime Minister of Australia says his release would have a, quote, devastating impact on the families of victims. And Britain's Home Secretary is proposing new laws to allow the U.K. government to ban illegal immigrants from claiming asylum. It comes as over 33,000 migrants crossed the English Channel so far this year, with the government predicting the number could rise to over 60,000 by the end of the year. NTD's Malcolm Hudson has this report from London. Speaking at the Conservative Party conference on Tuesday, Home Secretary Suela Braverman said we need to tackle the migrants crossing the English Channel. We've got to stop the boats crossing the Channel. This has gone on for far too long. We need to do more to get asylum seekers out of hotels, currently costing the British taxpayer £5 million a day. Braverman is proposing a new bill that will ban illegal migrants from claiming asylum. The new immigration powers would go further than existing legislation and were designed to create a blanket ban on anyone who enters Britain illegally from claiming refuge. Conservative Party members have mixed views about the proposed ban. Suella Breverman, you know, is right in what she says. I mean, she's human. You know, she will understand what is right and what is not right. But the person seeking to come here because there are greener pastures here, you know, and uh, there are economic migrants, there are everything migrants. So you need to check each case, you know, as it comes. She said migrants need to make sure they are following the right channels. One man said he doesn't think banning asylum claims for illegal migrants is a good idea. He said asylum is a fundamental principle. Deterring people from uh, making applications is perhaps another thing. Um, but, uh, the fact that they may enter illegally is not a particularly uh, good reason for banning asylum. Another man said illegal immigration hasn't gotten any better in years. Everything that's happened in the last 30 years has been really ignoring this problem and, and it hasn't gone away. In fact, it's got worse, hasn't it? The government has been under pressure to deal with the rising number of people making dangerous journeys across the English Channel. Numbers have been increasing despite plans to deport those arriving illegally to Rwanda. More than 33,000 people have made the crossing in small boats so far this year. That surpasses last year's record. Government officials have warned the total could reach 60,000 by the end of the year. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News. The United Kingdom has blocked a Chinese firm from accessing sensitive information about Britain's power grid as concerns grow about Beijing's involvement in critical infrastructure in the West. Business Secretary Jacob Rees-Mogg said the deal posed a risk to the U.K.'s national security. The government will allow the acquisition of a 35% stake in Electricity Northwest by a subsidiary of the Chinese State Development and Investment Corporation while subjecting it to certain conditions. Those include restricting the Chinese firm's access to critical information and its influence over appointments of key staff members at Electricity Northwest. 
Rees-Mogg issued the order under the UK's new National Security and Investment Act. The 2021 Act grants powers to the government to scrutinize and intervene in acquisitions made by businesses, investors and others that could harm the UK's national security. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, the 7th century Cathedral of Tallinn in Armenia undergoes restoration. More than a half million dollars has been allocated by the Armenian government for church restoration this year. In Morocco, ancient fortresses known as Kasbas and fortified villages known as Kassars draw tourists from around the world, but they're under threat due to the lack of restoration. Find out more right here on NTD News. Good to have you back with us. Over the years, earthquakes have damaged the 7th century Cathedral of Tallinn in Armenia, but the country's government is looking to repair those damages. It set aside more than a half million dollars for church restoration this year. And today's Andrew Thomas has the details. The Cathedral of Tallinn remains a local attraction because of its size and architecture. The exact date of the construction of the cathedral is unknown. Over the years, earthquakes have destroyed parts of the church but the Armenian government hopes to restore the cathedral. Officials have developed a plan to reconstruct the ancient church. A very interesting temple. It is considered a central domed basilica, a three-apse central domed basilica, one of the big temples of the 7th century. It was destroyed by an earthquake in 1840 and was also damaged by an earthquake in 1926. Earthquakes destroyed the dome and most of the southern and western walls. Some restoration work has been partially done since the 1930s. It can be restored to its former shape, but this is a very difficult restoration technology because it's necessary to strengthen existing structures and to create new additional structures so that this heaviness of the dome can be held. This, of course, is a very difficult job to do, but of course, it is doable. Tsunamiom says it could take at least five years and potentially $1 million to complete the restoration, but private investors have been found. It will take several years, I think, something around five years, and the preliminary estimate is somewhere from seven dollars to $800,000 to maybe it can reach $1 million. The Cathedral of Tallinn is just one of 25,000 religious monuments in Armenia. According to local media reports, at least 50% of them are in urgent need of repair. Around 30% are on the verge of collapse. That's according to a report by Eurasianet.org in 2012. In 2022, the state allocated about 250 to 300 million Armenian drams, about 570,000 to 680,000 dollars from the budget for the restoration of cultural historical monuments. In particular, this year these are all the medieval temples, including early medieval temples. A total of 12 projects are planned for 2022. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A province in the south of Morocco is famous for its ancient fortresses and fortified villages, but the area's cultural and architectural heritage is under threat due to the lack of restoration. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. 
South of the high Atlas Mountains in Morocco are some of the most picturesque ancient fortified villages known as Kassars. This is the Kassar of Ayat Ben Hadou. Lawrence of Arabia, the Mummy, Alexander, and more were partially filmed here. This village acted as a commercial hub for caravans between Marrakesh and Sudan. About 800 people still live in the village, which was designated as a World Heritage Site by UNESCO in 1987. Here is like uh, one of the mythical Alcazar. I can say that because it has been known like since the dawn of time, like one of the caravan counters. is like uh, what we call also caravan sarai. So like a strategic point of commerce. Uh, it's important before also because it used to be called the salty, the salt road. Kaspag Torit is another site nearby. The Kaspag was partially restored in the 1990s. It still needs more work and only the entrance is safe to visit. This Kasbah is called Torit, which means the plateau. Almost all the Kasbahs were built on the plateaus to be well protected. It was the Pasha Glui who lived here. The role of this Kasbah was the protection of the inhabitants who were under the sovereignty of the Pasha. These Kasbahs are in dire need of restoration. A large number of them have been neglected over the years, but some have been saved. This Kasbah considered itself the heart of the city, or region, or even the tribe. Twenty years of renovations were done for this Kasbah. It happened after seeing this Kasbah almost ruined. So thanks to the family owners of this Kasbah, and also tourists who always visit it, this Kasbah also helped the renovations of another Kasbah. All of this was possible because this Kasbah used to be on the 50 dirham note. It's famous. Renovating these structures is a difficult and endless challenge, considering the durability of the water, clay, straw, and wood they're made from. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, James Bond is celebrating 60 years of movies. The franchise's producers share what makes the character great and how to continue the legacy. Details to come on NTD News Today. Aaron Judge hits his 62nd home run of the season and breaks the American League home run record. The previous record was set by Roger Maris, also a Yankee, in 1961. The long chase to the top ended when the 30-year-old Yankees slugger drove a slider from the Texas Rangers pitcher into the first row of seats in left field. It was the second game of New York's day-night doubleheader. After Judge took the record-breaking swing, he rounded the bases as his Yankee teammates streamed out of the dugout and waited for him to step on home plate. Barry Bonds holds the overall league home run record at 73, set with the San Francisco Giants in 2001. However, many consider Judge the true record holder for most home runs because all home run records after Maris's are clouded by steroids or other drugs, either openly or suspected. James Bond, the martini-drinking, tuxedo-wearing British secret agent, celebrates 60 years on the silver screen. The next actor to take on the iconic role has big shoes to fill. James Bond is celebrating a new milestone, 60 years on the silver screen. October 5th marks the day Dr. No, the first movie in the franchise, made its world premiere in 1962. James Bond. And the day has since been dubbed James Bond Day. But after 25 movies and a decades-long legacy, the big question now is, who will be the next 007? 
According to Bond sibling producers Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, the search for a new actor hasn't even begun. We haven't really even begun to think about the casting because what we have to do is start a whole new reinvention, um, which is what's exciting about being at this place now. With Daniel Craig's final outing as the suave super spy in No Time to Die, fans have been speculating wildly about who would be cast in one of Hollywood's most sought-after roles. Broccoli and Wilson say choosing the right actor has been paramount to the franchise's success. Thank goodness, you know, they cast Sean Connery originally because I think if, mm -hmm. if it had not been him, who knows whether we'd still be here 60 years afterwards. And um, each one of the actors has, you know, transformed the, the series in a new direction, kept them fresh and relevant for the time. So uh, I think the actors are the key to to the success of the film and, you know, and also, obviously also the, all the other talent that, that all comes together to make these films. I mean, if you look at the actors who portrayed Bond, it's very hard to pin down any common characteristic. And the secret to the martini-drinking, tuxedo-wearing British secret agent's longevity? I mean, the reason why we're here for 60 years is because of all the audiences and the fans that have supported these movies. And so, you know, we try to make them as best as we can, and we're really, really thrilled to be here celebrating the 60th. One of the world's rarest pink diamonds is up for auction. It's expected to fetch more than $21 million. The diamond is a rare 11.15 carat fancy vivid pink star diamond. It was discovered in the Williamson Mine in Mwadoe, Tanzania. The mine is one of the world's oldest and it's famous for producing saturated pink diamonds. Sotheby's says pink is one of the rarest colors to occur naturally in diamonds and the auction house says that only a tiny percentage of pink diamonds are classified as fancy vivid pink. This diamond is the second largest vivid pink with flawless clarity ever to be offered for sale at auction. It was first unveiled in London and toured Dubai, Singapore, and Taipei. It will be auctioned on Friday, October 7th. Teachers deserve to be celebrated every day, but especially today on World Teachers Day. It's observed on October 5th, and it honors teachers and teacher organizations. Teachers work hard to prepare students, so it's important to recognize the difficult job they do. To observe World Teachers Day, the best thing you can do is thank a teacher who made or is making a positive impact on your life. So students, parents, and others, be sure to let them know what they mean to you. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.